episode 194, Why Capturing Patient-Reported Outcomes Makes a Whole Lot of Sense. Today, I speak with Diane Bryson from Inspired Health Strategies. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I talk with Diane Bryson from Inspired Health Strategies about patient reported outcomes, i.e. PRO. And we talk about how PRO collected, especially during clinical trials and beyond, is fast becoming the thing to do. Not only because it tends to make a difference when you go to market in a big positive way, but also because policies are changing that mandate the collection of PRO in real time. This is per the old PFDD, otherwise known as patient-focused drug development. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Diane. Stacy, I am so happy to be here. Thank you for asking me to do this. How would you respond to the either completely out in the open criticism or somewhat veiled that patient-reported outcomes are pretty unscientific? Like if I ask you today how you're feeling, you could say great. And if I ask you tomorrow how you're feeling, you could say not so good. And it has nothing to do with what's going on with the clinical trial. But you don't necessarily even realize that. It's like if, if something happens in your life or you didn't get a good night's sleep or whatever, which has led many people to say that patient-reported outcomes or infer are pretty unscientific and tough to lend credence to because of that. And that is a concern. They're not scientific. They're what we do in our, our daily lives. I think we have to just have to learn to accept that, really, that that data is just as valid as what my blood pressure number is. I mean, in a clinical trial now, there are certain expectations. And it's funny, they were talking about this on this webinar on Monday, the FDA webinar, that we have to change our minds. We just have to accept that this is valid data. If a patient drops out of a clinical trial, is lost to follow-up, that patient is counted as a death. That is erroneous data. But that's how it is right now. We accept that. Why can't we then accept I was able to get up and play with my kids longer? We've been talking for years in this industry about being innovative. The innovation part here is really a change in thinking. Talk about PFDD. PFDD. Yes. So tell me about PFDD. So patient-focused drug development is an initiative that has been ongoing for the past few years at the FDA. It came about as a result of the 21st Century Cures Act. So here that act was done in Congress. Pharma doesn't always listen to everything in Congress. So they said, look, FDA, you're in charge with implementing this. I had gone to a meeting in March of this year at the FDA. I had a friend who really encouraged me to go, and I'm so glad I went because I was in the room when I heard the FDA say, we are going to issue guidance that says that patients should be included in a meaningful way in drug development from pre-IND all the way through to commercial. The commercial requirement to collect real-world data in real time is really more a part of the 21st century cures piece of it and is probably going to come with some restrictions or not every company or not every drug is going to have to do it. But I really hope that 
companies learn that there's value in doing that. But they definitely have to do this before they develop the clinical trial protocol all the way through the clinical trial. And also, I was on an FDA call just this week, and the push is to even close the loop with patients finally. And if you're collecting PROs, you can do this easily electronically to share data back with patients on how they did in this clinical trial. Give them some information, not just have them be the guinea pig. I had met a woman whose husband has cancer, had cancer. I should say had first. And the doctor got them involved with a clinical trial. They did wonderfully. The clinical trial folks were great. They were hands-on. The couple felt like they had a secure blanket wrapped around them. Once the clinical trial was over, they didn't hear from anybody. And they were so miffed about it that when the, the husband's cancer returned, they refused to participate in yet another clinical trial. Hopefully, that will change with PFDD. It's hard enough to get people to participate in a clinical trial without making things difficult for them. What would constitute a patient-reported outcome? Like, I'm assuming we're not talking about, as you mentioned, a clinical outcome, which is, you know, how did your lab values turn out? Like, that's not something you'd ask a patient. So what are the kinds of questions you're asking that constitute a patient-reported outcome? Okay, so I'll use as an example one that is a, now becoming a classic. And this is with um, Duchenne, um, a muscular dystrophy. It's a disease that impacts mostly boys, and it's a fatal disease. Up to just a few years ago, the Duchenne Family Foundation really had, had an impact on changing what these PROs could be. Up to a few years ago, clinical trials usually meant that if you were testing a drug for Duchenne, you used a six-minute walk test. In other words, asking, finding out if a boy, how long, how far a boy could walk in six minutes. But the Duchenne Family Foundation really fought against the FDA as one drug was not going to be approved because the boys couldn't pass the six-minute walk test. Well, Duchenne Family Foundation said to the FDA, that's not really what's relevant. So the PROs are relevant to patients, not relevant as much to clinicians. What is relevant to patients and families is helping these boys live better while they're alive, helping them focus better. Many of these boys have are on the autism spectrum or have ADHD, so helping them manage the symptoms of those things. And so now the drugs that are in development are looking at going after, well, how can we manage these day-to-day issues with these boys so that the lives that they, the short lives that they do live are higher quality than worrying about how far they can walk. The parents even said, we don't care if they don't walk. We want them to still be able to engage with us. And so that's an example of, again, a clinical outcome, six-minute walk test versus a quality of life versus I can focus and actually go to class. So if we're talking about involving patients in a meaningful way, what does that mean? Is it that in addition to administering the product that the patient is also given some sort of, you know, survey? Uh, They could be given a survey, but it could be something. Well, I'll give you an example of what I've done. Again, working with this company working on rare disease, and I learned that the company's concerns were around this molecule that they were developing was that they think it's effective. It looks like it's meeting all the safety requirements, but it stinks. And it tastes horrible. So the company was focused on making sure that this tablet was hard and 
not crushable and enteric coated or put some kind of coating on it so that as a person took the pill in this case, they wouldn't taste it or smell it. And I just insisted, it took me a year to finally get R&D. And this came from the head of R&D at that time, finally badgering them to say, you got to listen to the patients before you go to phase two. And finally, I was able to pull together, in this case, this was a teleconference, global, that included advocacy groups, patients, families, caregivers. And I simply asked a a lot of questions so that the people on the phone, and this in this case ranged from commercial all the way through R&D, all the stakeholders could really hear firsthand. And what they learned was they hear the company was focused on taste and smell. They learned that 80% of the population that is managing this disease is on a feeding tube. Taste and smell are irrelevant. We could have come out with a drug that could possibly be the cure for this disease, and 80% of the population would not have been able to use that drug simply because it wasn't going to be able to fit into a feeding tube. The company went back, realized, okay, we need to add some formulations to make sure that we can accommodate the feeding tube. Hopefully, in the end, now the, the drug will, when it does finally enter the market, will be able to be used by 100% of that patient population. So the company has not only supported patients, but it's also supported this bottom line. Can you imagine having all, all the effort, all the money that it takes to get a drug to market and 80% of your market can't use your drug? That's going to kill your stock price, if nothing else. So now the company does listen earlier. And that was a real benefit that they could see immediately, even before a clinical trial was over. So I don't mean to be cheeky or jump to a conclusion here, but kind of what it sounds like you're talking about, like if you asked me how to describe it, I would say you did some market research or you conducted a needs analysis. Would you say that conducting a needs analysis or market research is a synonym for patient reported outcomes? I guess it could be. Somebody who knows market research better than I do may differ on that. And, and and I would say, too, others have argued with me that we've always been collecting patient-reported outcomes because we'll do a sur- some kind of survey during the course of the clinical trial. I think the difference now is that we're starting to focus more on real world in real time. When you do market research, typically, at least in my experience, that's a point in time. That information that you gather in that focus group or in that survey is true that day. Tomorrow, something could happen. And that research doesn't have to be true anymore. But if you are collecting on an ongoing basis, PROs, the same data, I guess, you'll know, you'll be able to be informed about the changes and you'll be able to anticipate issues instead of just waiting. I'll use Invacana as an example. Unfortunate. Invacana is a drug for diabetes and therefore, of course, people with diabetes want to avoid amputations. It was found that patients who were taking Invacana had a higher rate of amputation than was expected when the drug got out in the real world. If they were collecting PROs on when that drug entered the marketplace, they would have had an early warning signal to say, uh-oh, something's happening here that shouldn't be happening. Let's see what we can do with it about that instead of waiting for that information to come in passively. And now that drug has a black box warning. But it's even beyond the black box warning. It's the people who had limbs amputated that maybe wouldn't have if there would have been some way to understand what's happening with that drug in the real world in real time. Obviously, an amputation is a clinical outcome. 
So are you suggesting that PROs, you know, like if you're asking a patient a question, like what's going on with you? And the patient says, oh, I'm going to, I don't know if there's some kind of markers or side effects that are precursors to amputation. And therefore, if you ask the patient whether they're experiencing those side effects, it's a way to get ahead of a clinical outcome before it gets bad. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would use uh, Amavig as an example. Amavig is the is a drug from Amgen and uh, Novartis Neuroscience Partnership. It was just recently approved for prevention of migraine. And this is a whole new class of drug. This is the first drug that actually has patient-reported outcomes collected real-world, real-time. They used an instrument that was validated by the FDA. It took them two years to get this thing validated. But they were able to collect data that says that, well, if you know anyone, I'll go back a bit. If you know anyone who has migraines, you know they're out of their lives a lot. They're not always able to go to work. They're not always able to be with their family. They're in a dark room waiting for this migraine to subside. Their lives are uncomfortable. There are people who have lost their careers to migraine. So what Amavig's labels, though, says is that if you take Amavig, your chances of going to work more frequently, being able to be with your family are higher with Amavig. Now, those aren't clinical outcomes. Those are quality of life issues. Those are PROs. I'll have time with my family. That's important to me. I'm going to take this drug. And that actually could get in the label. (laughs) Yes, it's in the label because Amgen and Novartis were smart enough, again, to use a PRO collection tool that allowed patients to, which which was a diary, actually. I mean, it just wasn't a written diary. That allowed, it was an app that allowed patients to constantly inform Novartis and Amgen during the clinical trial the changes in their lives as a result of being on the drug. Do you have any idea how they came up with the questions they were asking or did they go through and parse unstructured text in order to determine, oh, we have a 50% increase in this one thing? Sometimes what I think it was Oprah Winfrey that says sometimes what all that matters is asking the right questions. And it would (laughs) seem like this is one of those instances. I'm not sure how they did it, but I have worked with a company that has a platform that is able to collect PROs. And we did that through natural language processing. We were able to sort through the platform and understand issues with patients. For instance, we worked with one company. They're getting ahead of building their protocol. So they're doing just what patient-focused drug development is saying, please talk to patients before you build your protocol. So therefore, you will build a protocol that is going to end up better able to be utilized by patients. You'll probably keep the patients in the clinical trial longer, and you're going to end up with data in the end that's going to be included in this label for patient-reported outcomes. What we did for this company was actually go through our database of more than 50,000 people and select out the people who had this particular disease and assess through natural language processing what they were talking about, what was relevant to them as they're managing this disease. Interestingly, the drug company was surprised that the patients didn't mention this disease at all. And I don't want to mention it here because it's not out yet. So I apologize for that. Patients didn't talk about the disease specifically. What they did talk about was the impact that the disease was having on their life. And the 
drug company up to this point had not heard anything about this. These patients were going blind. That meant that they were no longer independent. That meant they had to have a caregiver. That meant they couldn't drive. They had to have people do things for them. And these are the things that were, that were impacting their lives. So now, as the drug company is building their protocol, they know they have to allow for transportation or at least getting a caregiver for transportation. Maybe they can use remote monitoring instead of having the patient come to a site all the time. It may change their frequency of getting to a site because of the impact that this disease already has on their lives. The company is certainly interested in ensuring that every patient who gets into the trial stays in that trial. And this was free text? Yes, it was. And I guess, I guess that's one way that you can not create situations where you're sort of leading the witness or priming right. for certain answers, which is always an issue when you conduct a survey. If you ask them things in the last six months that have made you happy and then are you happy, people are going to, on a scale of one to ten, rate themselves happier than if you ask a question like, what are all the unhappy things that happened? <laughs> you know, like it's very easy to, to bias a survey unintentionally. And that, to me, is the value. If a company is going to use a platform that collects PROs, and I've seen this where they use drop-down boxes because of regulatory, they're concerned about the language that's going to be used on the platform or in the community. But those drop-down boxes are limited choices, and they will not be able to even inform you of business insights because you've already led them down this path. If you're using a platform that is using natural language processing, if you can work with regulatory to help them understand how you're going to monitor that and manage that because you have to also pay attention to if, if this is an active drug in the marketplace, what's happening with the adverse events and the adverse events reporting, how you're managing that. If you're able to convince regulatory that that risk is worth the benefit that you're going to get from letting people just talk. It's incredible. And I have to say that I have worked a lot with regulatory and I have found that they're usually open to trying to figure something out. In the past, people have always said, as I speak to audiences, they always say, regulatory is the issue. We can't do this, we can't do that because of regulatory. I argue otherwise. I've never had a project rejected. I have always found that if I routinely work with regulatory, and that usually means when I go into a company, meeting with them on a weekly basis, so they hear the idea of an initiative from concept. And week one, they may say, no, Diane, we can't do that. But by the time I get back to them the next week, they've already thought about it and they have figured out a way that we can do it. So we can work with this natural language, even in this, in this pharmaceutical industry. Which is very encouraging to hear. One counterpoint to that is I had Dr. Ethan Bosch on the show uh, last year sometime and he had run, now granted, this was post-commercialization. And his intent was slightly different, which could account for the difference here. What he was doing is assessing via patient-reported outcomes side effects of cancer drugs. The result of the trial was fantastic. They extended patient lives by five months, which is substantial, between the control group and those that were in this program. And one of the things that, that Dr. Ethan Bosch said was that they very specifically asked very specific questions because what they realized is that they didn't ask, are you tired? 
for example, because everybody's tired and there's nothing you can do about it. But there are certain outcomes which are markers of issues that they actually can tweak dosage in order to, mm-hmm. to ameliorate. In his particular case, there were drop downs for them to very quickly be able to use structured data to create nurse alerts uh, that mm-hmm. were relevant. That sounds like a great example, though. My experience has been that we have not, but with the Cicinoria patients, we never would have thought to ask them about what happens when you get to the ER because we're hoping our drug keeps them out of the ER. So if we hadn't listened to those patients, we wouldn't have known how often they get to the ER, that the ER is actually where they live and the issues that they deal with there. Yeah. And I guess the difference there is that it's it's what are you trying to do? You're not sure what you're looking for, which it seems like in the case of a clinical trial, you're not sure what you're after. So if you use free text in those particular situations, then you're enabling someone to freely write down whatever it is. And you're not throwing them down a chute before you even know what the chutes are. Whereas In Dr. Ethan Bott, in the case of that, they knew exactly what they were looking for. So the object was to identify situations where the markers were there that they already knew about. I'm not sure because I I think part of this is the responsibility of the company to better understand the patient. So we should be knowing what we're looking for. But that means that we've had conversations. So we've gathered some information. Uh, And I I have an example of a funny one to me friend of mine is participating in a clinical trial and it's for female incontinence. So she has, every time she reports in, she has to answer the same set of questions. They're on a paper survey or probably on a tablet survey. So they're structured and she's recently divorced and this will be relevant in just a minute. She's recently divorced. She, she has not had a big social social life or sexual life. But these questions that are being asked of her every time she shows up are about her sexual life. And if she says she doesn't have one, they go on to the next question. So how satisfied are you in that life? I've already said to you, I don't have one. Okay. <laughs> and so, so now the data that they're getting is not even the correct data. They're not even getting an understanding, and the data that they're getting is not applicable. That's her answer every time. There's nobody there to ask the second question, or they're not even allowed within the structure of the protocol to ask the second question. The cool thing I think about the platform that we were working with is that we could ask the second question. We had several levels of opt-in, and if we were able to directly contact the patient, we could follow up and ask them. So... You're saying N.A. constantly on these surveys. Can we talk about that? And you can get some more information. <laughs> so that, again, is an example. Maybe we should know what we're looking for. But all the time, we don't always know everything. Natural language helps us find some things that we, we just might have missed otherwise. To be perfectly frank, my takeaway from what you just said is just kind of, you know, once again, how woefully behind the technology curve that the life science industry is, because nothing for nothing, if this was any other industry, to send out a survey like that would be inexcusable. Like, it's just not a professional thing to do, honestly. (laughs) Yes, I think that you're right, Stacey. Here, our expectations are so low. And so I think it's also encouragement that if we do just something, 
we're going to serve people better. In this industry, we focus, we think our end user is the person who writes the prescription or the person who approves access to that prescription. We have a hard time realizing that the end user is really the patient. That's the one that we really serve. And we certainly have to work with the distribution channels along the way, the physician, the payer, and others, to make sure that everybody is happy. But in the end, it's the end user and the needs of that end user. When I look at companies to work with, I look at how they're structured to understand where the patient is in their business, to understand if maybe they've moved on a bit, to start thinking about the patient really is the end user. But most of the companies certainly are not there. Yeah, it is odd if you think about it, especially, you know, just the lack of focus on refills or, or total RX or, or maintaining customers, especially because generally speaking, if you think about industry, they tend to be very rational relative to pursuing an objective. And if the objective is to raise sales just sort of generally, I guess the one thing that is definitely true about the life science industry is that tradition is certainly a driver. Ugh. So, you know, I'm sure it harkens back to whatever was going on 20 years ago. It's just interesting that despite all of the business drivers that would seem to make perfectly logical sense to focus on TRX, that they still don't. I, at one point, I was I, I told you I've been at this, banging my head against this industry for the last 12 years. And I got to a point at one point where I was going to go to shareholders and I, I would and, and explain, you don't understand how this really works and how much money you're really losing. Even though you're getting a good return with this stock right now, you could get a much better return if we did something to pay attention to the customers, the patients that are already existing. And I, I just, uh, I just don't get it. I think at one at one point someone told me that it was really just a matter of getting information, and that we could get information on what happens to the prescription, the script once it's written. You can tell whether or not it got filled. You can tell who wrote it. You can tell where it was filled. We don't have that data on patients, so that's where I then go back to the value of companies utilizing these platforms. You'll be able to gather information about patients and understand patient behavior better. And therefore, you may be able to better understand patients to the level where you understand physicians and the data won't be an issue anymore. And you can do something about adherence rates and retention. And that brings up actually another really good point, Diane. You had mentioned patient reported outcomes in the context of adherence, and you are striving to improve adherence. And there are many companies that have tried to do something with adherence. And let's just say many have tried, few have succeeded. Right. And largely probably because in order to succeed, there is definitely a depth of knowledge which is necessary relative to why do patients choose to take a med or not take a med. So in the absence of that, it, I can see that it really does become a terrifically uphill climb to impact refill rates. I think, though, even though I know many have tried, few have succeeded. And that that's usually because we're focused on, in, in focusing on adherence, we're focused on the 15% of the equation, access. And I would argue that most of the time, it's behavior. It's what's going on between your ears. And the companies and even the agencies that are focusing on behavior are improving engagement. They're understanding the issues beyond cost or an access 
to taking a drug or a reminder that that's not always it. I think that really it's it's about engagement. It's what happens between the ears. It's understanding what are the motivations and the drivers for people to manage their health. I did one project where I really learned, oh my goodness, first of all, there are, I, I can't remember the exact number. There's like 650,000 minutes in a year. The typical patient will spend 83 of those minutes within the healthcare system. So you have still 650,000 something minutes to talk to get to patients in in their lives. We learned that we had to develop a 360 degree kind of communications plan so that we could hit patients in other points of their lives outside of the doctor's office. We learned that the community influences people's behavior. And even think about it in your own life. Who do you listen to? You listen to your, your sister or your mom or your, or your good friend, and that doctor is still somewhat distant from you. And something interesting that we learned even in the um, Hispanic community, we did this one uh, multicultural marketing initiative, which is a whole other thing. But we learned that when the women would go to the doctor and they learned that they might have had hypertension, the doctor prescribed a medication and their sister was in the room with them. And chances are, so, was, so were other family members. And everybody said, yes, out of respect to the doctor, we're going to go back and we're going to do exactly what you tell us. But by the time they got home, the sister says, look, you don't have to go get that medication. I have hypertension too. So here, I'm going to share my medication with you. <sighs> Whoa, if we could get, and we did, we successfully got to faith-based organizations, community-based organizations, other areas of influence within people's communities, and got the message out, don't share your medication. You need to follow your doctor's direction. If you have any concerns, you need to go back to your healthcare provider. And we were very successful at getting those messages out. What we found was that Patients who were impacted by these messages started to manage their health better, and the doctors then spent even more time with them. We couldn't claim clinical outcomes with that, but we could claim a change in, again, behavior, which helped to, I guess, bring about this empowered patient that we're always talking about. It wasn't a matter of access. It was a matter of changing the brain a bit and helping people understand a bit better, and it's not just education. It's influence of that now what they call an ecosystem, (laughs) this community that has incredible influence over how we make our decisions. Certainly, if you are not collecting PRO, it's very difficult to affect behavior change. Where can people learn more about what you're up to these days, Diane? I have a website and I blog on it. It's www.inspiredhealthstrategies.com. Certainly there's a blog page, but there's also a page that where you can download materials that I find that are interesting that pertain to this topic. For instance, all of the PFDD guidance information is there. Instead of trying to dig through the FDA website, go to my page and download it. It'll make it easier for you. Fantastic. I thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, I thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.